Warren Olney is host and executive producer of KCRW's Which Way LA, which will soon celebrate its 20th anniversary. And, <laughs> and to the point, he recently received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Radio and Television News Association of Southern California for his broad achievements in television, news, and local and national public radio. Please give a very warm welcome to Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful, of course, to represent KCRW and to partner with Sokolo, which is such a terrific organization. Uh, we're asking an ominous question tonight. Uh, is California's solar gold rush destined to fail? Ominous for a lot of reasons, uh, given the amount of money that's being invested in it by the federal government and the state government and, uh, and by private investors as well, uh, all in the name, of course, of fighting climate change. What about the costs? What about the costs in money? What about the costs in the environment as well? We have a, a wonderful panel uh, to discuss this, uh, people uh, very much involved in the solar industry as well as other, uh, being expert in other uh, renewable uh, energies. Jim Cahill, who's next to me, is the Regional Director of Operations at Consumer Solar Energy. Uh, that's the, uh, or, or excuse me, of Consumer Solar, solar Energy, City. I should say, at uh, Solar City. Uh, previously, he co-owned and co-managed Clean Fuel Connection, a solar installation and electric vehicle charging infrastructure company. He was very much involved in the EV1, the ill-fated EV1, not ill-fated because <laughs> of Jim Cahill. <laughs> Lisa Marganelli is the director of the New America Foundation Energy Policy Initiative. She's author of the book Oil on the Brain, Petroleum's Long Strange Trip to Your Tank. Her column, Money Tales, combines economics and oral history and appears on the San Francisco Chronicles website. She's written for a lot of other publications as well. Daniel Kamen is professor of energy at UC Berkeley. He's founder and director of Cal's Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory, co-director of the Berkeley Institute of the Environment and director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center. And down at the end is Ron Nichols, general manager of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. He's currently applying 35 years of experience in the electric and water utility industry to help guide the LAWP transformation uh, to more strategic and sustainable water and power supplies. And he's partly responsible uh, for rescuing California from the energy crisis of some years ago, and I think he deserves credit for that. Let's give him a hand for that. I think so. You and I. I'd like to start with... Uh, uh, Lisa, and uh, tell us, Lisa, if you will, from your standpoint, about the uh, solar gold rush uh, in uh, California. How extensive is it? Well, um, the, the PUC just rece uh, released a report showing that um, we have about 2.5 gigawatts of solar that have been approved and are producing in the state. Um, uh, I, I think some of it has not yet come online, but it's, it's approved and it's in process. Uh, that's quite amazing when you consider that we had uh, about 225 megawatts in, I think, 2005 or 2006. So we've basically, we've, we've scaled up by 10. But the other thing to remember is that um, a gigawatt is essentially what a nuclear power plant produces. Now, solar does not produce the same. You might have a capacity of a gigawatt. The gigawatt doesn't produce as many kilowatt hours as a nuclear power plant does. But we've actually got, in, in terms of um, 
you know, sort of slated, soon to be producing uh, solar, we have a capacity of 2.5 gigawatts, which is quite, you know, it's, it's pretty stunning. We're, we're sort of, um, this doesn't mean that we're uh, really producing a large chunk of California's power, but it certainly means that we're, we're advancing towards some kind of tipping point. And, and where, where we're going from being solar being a very minor source to being major. But I think um, the other thing is, is we're kind of probably about to find out what solar means. I think most of us, if, if asked, would say, well, solar is, you know, panels up on your roof, and, uh, and it's something that produces and takes the place of, of electricity that you produce with a coal or a gas-fired power plant. Um, but coal and gas-fired power plants... Um, are, are designed to, to be in a place far away, and they dispatch the power across lines to your house. And it, it sort of comes in, it's sort of like the water. You turn it on and it, and it comes in, you turn it off. Solar's actually kind of different. Solar kind of arrives in the middle of the afternoon with a big thump and, and then dissipates uh, through the evening um, or goes away completely. Solar kind of arrives at a certain time, and rather than arriving way over there and coming through transmission lines to your house, it might arrive on your rooftop but we've also got utility-scale solar. So we're about to sort of find out what it means to be dealing with a much more kind of um, interactive, dynamic electricity grid. And um, what's interesting to me, because I, I'm a reporter, is that we're not discussing that right now. Instead, we're sort of having a 30-year-old argument about whether or not the government should be involved in subsidizing power, when in fact our life is actually far removed from that. We're, we're in a much different place than where the media discussion is. Jim Cahill, uh, tell us what Solar City does, and is it part of the utility scale development of solar or the residential? We're, we're, we started as a residential only company uh, about five or six years ago and um, have branched into commercial, but we're not utility scale, so we're a much smaller. You know, if you see carports at the schools, that's the kind of commercial that we're doing, you know, up to 500 kilowatt type systems. And uh, every once in a while, a larger, a larger system, but that's kind of where we play. And mostly in the residential market, uh, when you look at the number of systems installed. So residential as opposed to big box realty or re retail rather, or something like that kind? We're, do we're doing our, our big box stores as well. And we're doing a lot of work with Walmart, with um, some of the other big box stores. And, uh, but when you look at the number of systems we're installing, just pure number of systems, although they're smaller, we're doing mostly residential. In you terms don't of have the transmission line problem, so what advantages does that give you in terms of cost? Uh, well, we don't have to, we go where DWP and Edison already have, uh, you know, energy, electrical energy panels available and we tap into those. And so we push power into those existing panels, therefore the infrastructure, as far as transmission lines, like Lisa mentioned, are, is not a problem. And uh, it's funny, when you said we arrive with a thump, I thought you were talking about our install crews. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> so, but, um, we, you know, we, we install on people's homes and we install uh, where they have their existing panel, we tie into that. Uh, Ron Nichols, as the uh, executive of the DWP, um, do you have a preference as to whether the energy comes from the large utility type uh, plant or from residential? At this point, we don't have a preference and we're, we're undertaking all forms of solar. We're dealing with our 
solar incentive program, which is net metering um, by both our residential customers and our commercial customers, where they put the solar on their roof and they use all the power that they can from that to the extent they have excess, we buy it back from them. We have just broken ground on two, not huge scale, but utility built solar, uh, about 10 megawatts each average, tying into our existing transmission system that already serves Los Angeles. And through that process, we'll get a better feel for the size, the cost, the performance of that relative to that. And we're just about to kick off a feed-in tariff program, which, if you're looking at it on your roof, would look no different than our solar incentive program. The difference is just how we contract for it. And that is, it's, it's on the roof of a, of a commercial customer, a government building, or a residential customer, and they enter into a 20-year contract, and we take all of the power uh, in, in lieu of it being a net metered arrangement for us. So we're looking at it at all scales. Um, we will be entering into likely some power purchase agreements uh, with some larger scale uh, contracts from other third-party providers as well. And it's important to us to get a feel for this at those different types of both business models, sizes, scales, and locations, so we get a real-world experience at the same time as to how this performs in our system. Does the DWP have plans to build utilities-type uh, installations? Like I said, we're... We're building, we're building some that are not as large as you would see. Some of the, some of the larger scale um, projects that you know that and some of those that Lisa referred to are on the order of 300 megawatts or more in some cases. Uh, we're doing something that's about less than a tenth that size, but still is at a scale that we believe is uh, going to test the commercial viability of a larger scale, larger than what you would see on, a, on a, a, even a commercial building. Don Cameron, what are the efficiencies and how do you compare them between the residential installations and the large utility-sized ones? Obviously, there are great differences in both categories, but is there a way to say that one or another is more efficient than... They have different strengths and weaknesses, but they're, they're not actually that different in efficiency. I mean, a solar panel is a solar panel. And when you kind of think about it, whether it's a small system on your roof, and I think you have to ask, who has solar on their roof? I'm just curious. So actually, it's a shame that more of you don't because this state offers some remarkable opportunities, incentive programs to have you do so. Um, but whether it's a small solar lantern or whether it's one of these huge solar fields, the basic science in the solar cells are quite similar. There's different technologies. We're in an amazing time because the number of laboratories around the world competing for whether it's going to be the typical blue, the crystalline ones, there's thin film, there's organic cells, there's all kinds of technologies that are coming online. They're commercial now and that are, that are coming up. So the cells do their thing. It's actually what Einstein won his Nobel Prize for uh, quite a long time ago, 1909. And that's fairly similar. The feature which is different though is what's called the balance of system. And you pay more for the other half of it if it's on your small rooftop because you've got more of the hardware you know, on, your own, on your own building, you pay less per watt if it's got big systems, but there are some huge advantages and you know, everyone highlighted different aspects of them. Small systems are near where you're using the power, you don't have the transmission issues. Big systems, you can get some, some scale of operation, but it's really in the non-solar cell part of the story. And so when you heard that 
there's not only programs that are incentivizing big utility scale systems, and in California we use the so-called renewable portfolio standards, sort of a requirement for a certain amount of our power to come from renewables, including solar, to what many people, including myself, think is maybe the most exciting new innovation policy-wise. We'll come to financing in a bit. The idea of these feed-in tariffs championed in Europe, and that's really giving a much more diverse set of suppliers long-term fixed contracts, all of those features affect the economics of solar in California much more than the basic cell. So figure of merit, 20% of the energy coming into a solar panel on average comes out as electricity. There are some that are somewhat higher. The highest you know, in the lab, uh, fancy companies, SpectraVision and others competing for the most efficient cells, 40%, but they're not in commercial operation. I work also in East Africa where we have cells that are much less efficient, 10% but they're really inexpensive. And so there's a huge range. And what's exciting now is that mix of science, that mix of different financing models, and if we can collectively get our act together about enabling solar through the policies, through the transmission that's needed, through the regulation that's often a big issue, that gigawatt or that gigawatt scale that we're at now could actually grow by another factor of 10. So it's a huge open world and it's much more in California, which has great sun, a function of what we enable, not the basic science. The science is there, they work really well, we need to grow it if we want to benefit from it. Jim Cahill, you make panels? Uh, we don't, we're an integrator no. only. So okay. we, use, we use whatever panels are available. Okay, what happened to Solyndra? <clears throat> well, you know, Solyndra was kind of a victim of some of the positive things that are happening with solar where, where the panel uh, prices and the module prices are coming down. And Solyndra was uh, almost a victim to that because their technology was different. And it wasn't as cheap to manufacture and it wasn't, you know. Why is it better if it was not cheaper to manufacture? Uh, because uh, as, as Dan said, we want to get these systems financed and we want to get them on the roof. And so the cheaper we can get them on the roof and get them producing, the better. But you still have to install them. What about costs of installation? Are they going to come down? Yeah, installation comes down a little bit, especially when you do larger scale systems like we're talking about. Um, but we've noticed that, and I'm sure some of the companies that are here tonight, I see some people from SunPower and Fat Energy, you know, we've noticed that they... Um, the more the, we can gain a lot of efficiency out of installing uh, modules, and it used to be when I first started my company that you know we were installing maybe uh, three or four systems a month would be a good month you know for installing uh, solar panels. And these days, if we have the volume of work there and the workers are trained, we can really get a, a great efficiency out of the installation labor. So we're still seeing labor costs come down you know, uh, for, for solar installations. How much longer, though, is this technology going to be undercut, if, if, especially the development of newer and, and, uh, and better, if more expensive, uh, technologies are developed here, undercut by the Chinese and others who uh, can manufacture, it, it, it appears, uh, faster, better, uh, or I shouldn't say better, but to faster and cheaper and, uh, you know, beat us to the market? Yeah, you know, I mean, the good, the good news about solar installations is all the installation labor has to be from here. So that part of it isn't going away. So when American I, jobs. Yeah, American jobs. And, you know, when I, came, when I started with Solar City in Southern California, we had 20 guys working in Southern California. We now have 300. That's four years. So uh, every one of those is a job where we didn't go backwards. We went forwards, you know, and we created another job. 
So I, I look at the panel, the module prices and what's going on with module prices as similar to the cell phones. You know, the, the cell phones just got cheaper and cheaper until finally they were giving you the cell phone and they were charging you for the service or the contract. And so I, I think solar's kind of come the same way. When I first started selling systems, we had long, long discussions about the inverters and the type of modules and whether they were reliable, whether they really worked, you know, what problems they had. Um, now our conversations in the home with the homeowner are very, um, very focused on financing. How do we pay for it? Uh, because we're gonna guarantee the production and we're gonna you know, do it through vehicles that, you know, third-party leases that, that make the cost to the customer nothing up front. Uh, Ron Nichols, uh, is, it, is it worth making the kind of investment that we're making now uh, to is it worth making that investment now, especially for something like Brightstar out in the uh, in, in the desert, uh, which is so expensive, two billion dollars, and uh, I don't think the transmission lines are even arranged yet. Um, with the technology developing so fast, are we likely to be investing in something that's going to be obsolete in a relatively short time? Well, that's always an issue with any new technology, <clears throat> and I think the important way to address that, Warren, is. We as a utility, and I'm looking through a utility executive's eyes now, have to get a better understanding of how solar works in our system. We need to build it, we need to build it into it. Our, our distribution systems were built for receiving power to our customers. And a big portion of our solar power is going to come from the rooftops of our customers. That's putting power back the other way. We need to learn that. We need to learn how it works. We need to make sure it works right. And we need to be able to learn from that and be a step ahead of it to plan accordingly for that. You can't wait around till the cheapest technology to get there, or you may never do it. We need to make some commitments now at the right scale that we believe our customers are willing to pay for and, and get it moving, learn about it, get better information about it to our customers, get better uh, understanding from the financial markets around, around this so that we can build a base and expand on it. And if we sat and waited around for it to get as inexpensive as it could, let's put it this way, if everybody stood around and waited for it, you wouldn't see the progress that we've seen. Solar PV panels are just been plummeting in price. That's, that's partly a function of demand, it's partly a function of the economy, it's partly a function of probably some Chinese pricing, uh, manufacturer pricing on it. Matters not. It's coming down and we're pleased to see that. We need to get on board with it and work that into a piece of our total power supply from a utility perspective if we're going to make the transformation that we're trying to make in this industry. You're all nodding and smiling and looking optimistic about all this. Uh, <laughs> what about the politics of it, uh, Lisa? To what extent does the investment depend on a public support, particularly if it's much more expensive, as clearly it's going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, than what we already have? Well, I, I think the, the politics are, are kind of complicated. Um, uh, on, on the one hand, the things that people are putting on the roofs obviously make sense to them. So, you know, before we start saying, oh, this doesn't make any sense, it does at some point make sense. It makes sense in, in India, solar uh, PV panels are competing with diesel generation. 
for, you know, to supply power to industrial plants. Um, so the price of the panels has come down very dramatically because of whatever's going in on in China. Um, and, uh, and we don't know how long that will continue to go on in China. We don't know how long the, the prices will continue to come down. We also, another thing about making solar panels is that they're very um, polluting to make, the slicing the silicon chips to make the PV panels. Uh, and in China, there have been riots in one of the towns that makes the PV panels because of the intense pollution. So there's the politics of China that's now mixed up in our, in our putting solar on our grid. And then we've got um, our own issues. And um, so Solyndra was a, a panel maker, and they uh, got loan, federal loan guarantees, um, which were a particularly structured kind of loan so that if the loan to the company succeeded, the, it was government money, taxpayer money backing up bank loans. And if the company went bankrupt, the taxpayer would step in there into the breach. So the taxpayer was taking a tremendous amount of risk in these deals um, without really realizing it. Or we, we didn't really have much of a discussion about it, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, <laughs> uh, but what we're doing with um, producing and, and uh, investing in solar power is a different kind of thing, and those are tax credits. And most of the stuff that we do for encouraging solar is in the form of investment tax credits. Uh, and there are also, with wind, we also use uh, production tax credits. So a production tax credit gives um, companies a tax credit on every kilowatt hour of, of power that they produce, and then they get to take that money kind of back. It sort of, it comes out of the treasury, but it never shows up at the treasury, so that's how we figure it. But then the investment tra uh, tax credit allows companies to, um, when you're, when you're putting in a solar array, you do all of your investment in the first five years or so, and then you kind of sit back and let your kilowatt hours come in. So um, this allows you to kind of write off a big section of your investment in a solar plant. Um, what's happened is, so that used to be a very good way of doing things um, because large companies would come in and do some of the financing so that they got those tax credits. So they would get to write off, it, it was, a way, it was a, a way of luring investors in. It worked really well. It was quite efficient from the standpoint of the taxpayer. And the taxpayer wasn't really holding much of a bag. We just ended up getting this solar stuff installed. Um, what happened with the financial crisis is that um, the companies were no longer willing to step up and do the financing. So the Treasury created a program called 1603 where companies who invest in solar get to, uh, get to get, sort of cash out those potential tax credits with each year of installation. So they actually get money back in a check from the treasury after they've paid forward all the money for the, the installation. Um, what's happened is, is that uh, we are allowing the production and the, um, the because of, of a problem with one loan guarantee project with, with Solyndra, where many of the projects have continued to be quite successful, we have instead allowed the uh, production tax credit and the, um, the uh, installation tax credit to, or ITC, to, to lapse. And so those are, uh, those normally are in, in two-year chunks, but what, what we've done because of the stimulus is those are extended out through 2016. But we have let the, the 
the chance of that 1603 to cash out, we've let that thing lapse. And so what we've done is we've created a set of instability uh, all through this industry where people who come in with one plan for starting a company then have to keep changing their game as, because they don't know at the end of the year if Congress is going to renew this tax credit or if they're going to renew the ability to cash out or if they're going to renew this. And so we've, we've taken the, the political discussion about Solyndra and the sort of instability that's happening in the political system and we've kind of pushed it into these entrepreneurs' business models where I don't think it actually needs to be. If we believe in solar, we'll make some sort of modest or ambitious project, and we, we, as we have in California, and we decide, okay, we're going to support it for 10 years and we're going to see what we get. Whereas what we've done at the national level is we have this constant, things constantly phasing out and, and this anxiety um, at the end of the year of whether or not this sort of business model is going to continue. So we, in a sense, we almost ask for bankruptcy when you do things where you, you're, you're putting things out and pulling them back. Jim Gahill, have you had experience with this instability and, and uh, the kind of issue that uh, she's talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, in the, in the beginning of um, 2009, we actually had a reduction in force due to the, the economy being what it, what it was. You know, we, we had to cut back and we had to install only cash systems for a while because we had a lot of our eggs in, you know, single baskets in terms of financing. And so it took a while for that to come back. It took at least a year before it started coming back in terms of financers. So it definitely creates instability. So I agree with what Lisa said. Do you anticipate that the systems that you install will become obsolete and that people will then want to invest in new ones? And will they, be, will they have saved enough uh, in the meantime uh, to make them still willing to do that? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, usually at the end of most of our lease agreements or PPAs, like some of our competitors, we have the ability to either let the customer buy out the system or let them extend the mm -hmm. lease further for five-year increments. And, you know, I always explain it to people like this. You know, the, um, I think Dan mentioned it in terms of when the solar cell was invented. You know, there's still solar one, I think they call it, is still in the Smithsonian. It's still producing power. So I'm not worried about the panels on my roof being necessarily obsolete. I know that they're going to produce less energy in 20 years than they do now, but I know that uh, I know that it's not such a big deal. That you know, most when we first started talking to customers, they were like, "What if next year they come out with a single module that sits on my roof and my neighbor gets that and I look right. silly because I've got 40 of these on my roof?" You know, it's not going to. It's not happening in that speed. You know, so it won't be the reduction in size that we see with cell phones, for instance. It won't be that drastic. So I, I still think it's, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, obsolescence is less of a problem than it's, than it's touted to be. Dan Kamen, how fast do you think this, uh, the technology is going to develop? How soon will it be before we'll be uh, getting power from devices, the looks of which we don't even anticipate at this point? Well, I mean, the basic, as you, as you hear, the basic science of the cell is unlikely to change a lot because it's a very simple process. It's the same thing that goes on in semiconductors. So there's probably not another Nobel Prize in the very basic science, but there's probably multiple Nobel Prizes. In fact, there's one that's sort of been teed up already. We probably know who's going to win it already in some of the advanced materials. And the innovations that I think you're likely to see, you heard already, the financial innovations that are needed here are dramatic. The idea that you could go to this model that isn't just a utility scale or isn't just a subsidy for homeowners 
um, who put them on. But this idea of a feed-in tariff really opens up the market to a whole range of mid-sized players. It's actually what's made solar in Germany go so quickly that they now chuckle about us in the United States because if a solar cell on your roof costs about $4 or $4.50 a watt to put it on, about a dollar of that, even in places that are working at the efficiency of getting the financial cost, that's about a dollar of that is all the paperwork, the handling, the middle stuff. Germany chuckles because there it's 10 cents. And they say, you know, really, you guys need to have a stack of paper this big, whereas we have one sheet. So there's huge uh, financial benefits. But there's another one, too. So I, I'm on my second generation of solar on, on my roof. Uh, when I took my first generation off, I sold them on the second-hand market and put a new generation on. But if you think about it, solar panels on your roof is kind of a, I mean, it's a nice, but it's kind of a dumb idea because you already have a roof, right? Most of us have a roof and our solar goes over it. Why have a roof? and then drill holes in it to put another solar, put another roof on top that's got gaps in it, right? Well, you know, that simple observation has led to another generation of products called building integrated solar. So that when you buy a roof, it is solar cells, and they probably click together in what's called plug and play, so that you just build the whole roof. You're amortizing the cost of solar with your roof, and everyone in California who's re-roofed knows it's not cheap in the first place. You're covering some of the costs in there, there's technology innovations. There's a company I'm working with that said, there's another really dumb thing, and we heard all before about the inverter, the thing that takes the direct current out of your solar cell and makes it into alternating current. Solar cells were expensive. They're still higher cost, and the inverters were expensive. But every one of you as a cell phone has in your pocket a device that makes DC to AC. So why, you know, why the bleep dot 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 do we actually have all of our DC power come out of a bunch of solar panels connected together, and then put that through one of these inverters. That's dumb because if one of your solar panels is dirty or shaded, then it reduces the output of the whole thing because they're connected together in, in a long line. There are companies now that make each solar panel an AC panel itself. 15 to 20% improvement in, in the power out, no change in cost. And those are the kinds of innovations that are likely to drop the cost so rapidly. So right now, the US Department of Energy has a program called SunShot. And the idea of SunShot is to get the price of solar down to a dollar watt, roughly 10 cents a kilowatt hour, cheaper than the power all of us, basically all of us pay for. That's a great goal, but it's probably gonna be the case that largely because of manufacturing around the world, including China, but not just China, we'll probably reach that target four or five years before 2020 without a federal program. That shows you how quickly things are moving. That's part of why Cylinder got caught up in the game. It wasn't a bad technology, it's just one that couldn't compete because the mass producing was moving too quickly. Now we need entrepreneurs, business models, places like LADWP, SCE, PG&E, San Diego Gas and Electric, to find new financing models to allow you to pay for it, for example, on your bill, so-called on-bill on financing, to give credits for these things. And it's that the rest of the system that we've got to catch up and exceed what's going on in Germany and elsewhere so that we can take the full advantage of it. And right now, we're not taking full advantage. And one of the easiest ways to think about it is that right now, almost all of us, except for those who have solar, pay a flat rate, whether you're buying power at 4 in the morning when the demand is low or 4 p.m. when the demand is high. But utilities can pay 10 times more at the peak time in the afternoon. Solar coming online at the peak time in the afternoon is vastly more valuable. So we need to catch up 
with what solar provides in terms of our technology, our smart meters, our smart grids. And that requires something that California is actually pretty good at, and that's thinking holistically about the system. We're much better than the rest of the country, but we've got to innovate there pretty rapidly now as well to take full advantage. Ron Nichols, we have a lot of very ambitious goals in California in terms of how much uh, renewable energy we're going to have to have by such and such a year. Uh, Do we have the capacity to meet those goals? Are you optimistic about that, and, and can we do it uh, in a way that isn't going to so vastly increase the cost of energy that it's going to cause a real backlash. I do believe we can meet, meet those both from a physically available supply and from a cost-effective matter, as long as you recognize that, yes, will it cost more than it does today? Yes, it, yes, it will. But you've got to take a look at the entire, entire effect on, on from an environmental perspective, on a sustainability perspective and being able to long-term reduce the long-term costs that we're looking at. LA was, was before there was a mandate to do so, voluntarily met 20% renewables in, 20, in 2010. Very pleased that we did. Knew that we were looking towards reaching something around 33%, uh, depending on whose who's, uh, goal it was. And now it's the law. And so we're, we're moving on all fronts to get there. Solar is probably going to get somewhere around of the 33% renewable. We expect we'll probably be somewhere between 5 and 7% percentage points of that 33%. Looks like it will be solar. Um, that could change. That could change if technology gets um, more cost-effective. That can change depending upon our experience, particularly in Basin, putting it on our roofs, our, our customers' roofs. But it's something that um, we're building into our plans. This isn't maybe we're going to do these things or where are we going to get this. We have a long-term plan and how, we, how we're going to get there. We reevaluate that plan every single year. We test it in the market every single year in terms of the different sources and where we can get that. We are blessed in Los Angeles with the fact that we do have existing transmission to lots of different places where renewable energy sources exist. We get wind energy in the Pacific Northwest today. We get wind energy and, and in the future, solar energy out of, out of Utah. We get um, soon we getting more, as we back out of our coal-fired plants, we'll be able to get additional solar at larger scale out of, out of the Southwest. And we have opportunities right in closer to our system in our existing transmission that taps into solar and, and wind resources and, and within small pieces, some geothermal that we can add into there. All of those are pieces that, on top of something we haven't talked about at all tonight, and that is energy efficiency. Because the absolute best energy source that you can use is the energy you never have to rely upon. And we haven't done enough there. And when we're talking about earlier, we we're talking about the prospects of jobs. Solar does bring good job opportunities, not as much as if, we, as if we had solar manufacturing in Los Angeles. I'm not anticipating that. But we will, we do get the, the jobs associated with, with the inspections, the, the interconnections, the financing, the marketing, the sales work associated with that, the, the maintenance, and all the installation that goes with all of that uh, on solar. And those are jobs in Los Angeles to the extent they're on our customers, on our customers' roofs. 
and on our, and on our buildings. And energy efficiency, of course, does that even more. It's a, it's a, a triple win for us to get there. It, will it cost a little more than if we sat back? Yeah, I think it might over the next decade. But I think, I think the difference is small enough that it's an investment important enough for the stability of, of our long-term rates to, to be able to make that investment now, not to mention the obvious environmental benefits associated with it. Lisa, back to the politics. You wrote the book, uh, Oil on the Brain, Petroleum's Long Strange Trip to Your Tank. How important is it that we begin to factor into the cost of petroleum, all of the costs into the environment, and... Uh, and so on, that we're not uh, factoring in now? And, and is that politically feasible, given the power of the oil industry? Oh, I, I think, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's feasible to factor those in. Some of the, the costs of oil that we don't calculate are, are huge. And just to give two, two things. One is um, the National Academy of Sciences estimates that there's a 28-cent cost in pollution-related health care and other pollution-related costs per gallon of gasoline. So that's about, that's a little more than half the federal taxes on a gallon of gasoline are this external, that this external cost that basically comes to rest in kids' lungs who are sitting beside the freeway. This is an enormous cost that we don't calculate in. The another, the, uh, another cost would be, um, there's a kind of a wonderful figure out that since 2004 to 2011, uh, the entire world invested a trillion dollars in renewables. That's a fabulous, you know, that's, that's a, what, a, what an achievement. But actually, in the last 10 years, the United States has unwittingly spent a trillion dollars on traffic jams between the fuel that we're using and uh, all of the cost of, of people's delays and, and the cost to the communities around that. So we have this sort of unconscious... Uh, a lot of our traditional energy sources have all sorts of unconscious costs or un unrealized costs. So that's one of the things that we need to think about. But I think the, the solar power um, issue is really interesting because if you, if you think back to the 1930s, um, when the government wanted to do a big investment push, they built hydroelectric dams and we built post offices all over the country because the way to get information from one person to the next was to send a letter through these big centralized things. So you could actually have big public works projects. What we have now is your home, which is networked to other people. As you know, you probably don't go to the post office very much because you're sending emails because that function has come to your house. And what happens when you put a solar panel on your house, when you put a smart meter on your house, is that you're part of a network and we no longer need so much the hydroelectric dam as we need to make sure that you are not blowing of electricity out your back door and wasting it. You were, like, my safety is only as good as Dan's and, and only as good as yours. So we, all these houses have to be networked together. So we actually have to come up with a different model of financing. It's not the government throws up a post office, throws up a hydroelectric dam. It's we all, we need to figure out the utilities and the government and us as individuals and kind of our, our sort of legal framework needs to adjust to the fact that a house is analogous to a power plant now. And that in a very weird way that we can barely understand because we, it hasn't really taken shape. Um, and we're sort of moving, I think one of the things we've been talking about is we're moving from a model of power generation that was like bowling, like big companies bowled a big, you know, sent us a thunderbolt. And what we're moving to now is something that's much more like a soccer game maybe, and maybe there's another game going on inside the ball. 
of like little tiny mice or something. So there's like this, you've got this incredible complexity starting to come into play. And we, our, our discourse, our, a lot of our regulations, a lot of our, se our financial senses are not quite caught up to where we're going. Uh, it's about time to go to uh, questions and answers, but I just want to raise, which we haven't done directly, my fault, I suppose, uh, the question that we began with, which is California solar gold rush destined to fail. I gather none of you thinks that it is, but uh, let me give you an opportunity in case you do. <laughs> I think the opposite is true. It's, it's, it's destined to fail if we don't take advantage of the opportunities. So what we just heard from Lisa about the cost, I think, is a really important part of the story. And if you think about the reasons why you put solar on, I mean, you started off in the beginning saying global warming. But in fact, global warming is one of, and arguably, in terms of what you do on your own home, it's actually probably a relatively small part of the individual story. It might be a motivator in terms of a green overall perspective, but solar as financed today, so when you buy the system, not when you lease like Solar City, but when you buy it today, depending on what the details are, you basically get it paying back in between, again, there's a range, five to 10 years, depending on what your system is, where you are, et cetera. The average home ownership time is about seven years. So in fact, you're about on a break-even point of you benefiting, and, and it turns out that more people who install solar tend to be people who plan to be in their home for a long time, and so they pay it off, and they're sort of making money on it for quite a while. One of the real challenges, not a problem of solar, but a broader societal one, is that we have good reason to install solar on the homes of people who are doing well, on businesses, because they can help drive down the cost curve, they can build the market. But there's an equity and a fairness question, and that is the poor, people who live in apartment buildings, people who don't plan to be there very long, they are left out of the benefit side of the story. But you get some neat groups that are finding ways to build around it. There's one in Oakland called Grid Alternatives. They work with Habitat for Humanity, among others. And they go say, look, it's fine to put solar on your home if you're wealthy, but if you're poor, it matters more because a much larger fraction of your disposable income is taken up by basic utilities. Let's find ways to make the homes of first-time homeowners and people who are living in what we used to poorly call the projects to get those homes as efficient as can be and to get solar on so that the variable part of their bills get controlled. A real challenge for everyone is finding ways to make this more democratic and more progressive. And that's a challenge because it's a high cost technology. So no question we can, uh, we can make the California gold rush work. And in fact, I, the, my closing point on this would really be bashing China has become popular. And I guess it's bad to say in the Goethe Institute, but there is a suit being brought against the Chinese by a German solar company it's really unfortunate because California is a, I mean, U.S. is a net exporter of goods and jobs based on solar using Chinese cells, using our cells, using cells made elsewhere, because most of the jobs are in the financing, the installation, the actual manufacturing factories is a small fraction. So we benefit by what China has done to push the envelope in terms of cost. Uh, you didn't challenge the, na the name of the session very much. Germany, based upon the numbers, Lisa, that you mentioned, uh, in one year alone, last year, and actually the, the year before, did three times the total installed base of the state of California through its history. So, well, that's kind of my point. I mean, you know, we make a big deal of how much solar we are doing in California, whereas California is and should be viewed as the Saudi Arabia of solar. 
we're doing peanuts. So, you know, my question to the panel is, why? Why is that? And, you know, is it a political issue? Why, you know, why aren't we ramping up much more aggressively than we already have? Germany has installed more. They started their subsidies much earlier. Solar systems in California produce many more kilowatt hours per unit of solar because of our better resource. And I tried to highlight before that the bureaucratic red tape around solar is much higher, not just in California, but in a lot of places and in Germany. But in terms of the rate of growth California's has been taking off, given that we not only are doing this at a time when we've seen a real recession while Germany is, is in a very good economic position, I actually think that relative to our base, we've done very well. But relative to our solar potential, we've barely scratched the surface. Also defend the metaphor just on the ground that uh, California has a history involving the gold rush. Uh, there is a, a new interest and in, in a lot of uh, government money being spent on uh, solar energy in California, and to make that connection here is meaningful to people, uh, w even if it doesn't have a global uh, uh, significance. We acquire our solar panels from an American company at a cheaper rate than China, and partially because of the the way that there's been um, there's been competition with China, and uh, maybe you could speak to you know the possibility of creating cheap solar panels in the United States and being able to be competitive worldwide. I don't think um, we should be focused on, um, this is skirting your question a little bit, but I don't think we should be focused on trying to um, manufacture cheaper than China or other places. I think we should be focused on looking at it as, as a globe and basically saying we need to get the total price of this down everywhere, not just, not just solar manufacturing costs down in the U.S., but down everywhere. And I think you, you made a good point when you said that, um, you know, that, that basically the competition that we're getting from China drove down the cost of the American-made modules. I know we use both, and we, we're, we're seeing what you're seeing, which is the, the costs are getting driven down within the U.S. And, you know, personally, I hope that, that, that it does create manufacturing jobs, but um, you know, I, I, I also think that it is a small fraction, as Dan said, of the total um, cost of getting solar installed. So I, you know, I'd, I certainly don't want to see lawsuits brought against other countries who are manufacturing modules cheaper um, when we could install more, so, more, more solar with cheaper modules. You know, I'm really focused on just getting as much of this stuff in as we can. And when we see that kind of thing happening or we see um, fights about the cost, where the panels are being manufactured, I, I, I get disinterested because I'm, it's not going to help me get more solar in. So cheaper panels are going to help me get more solar in. And, you know, even as, as uh, late as or as, you know, recently as 2004, we were probably paying 450 a watt for panels, as I'm sure some of you guys that have been in the industry were as well. And now we're paying, we're seeing prices below a buck. And so when I, I, I think we're way further along than I ever thought we would be at this time. You know, uh, if you'd asked me five years ago, when are we going to hit a tipping point, as Lisa mentioned, I would have said, not this year, for sure. And now I'm looking at this year and I'm saying, wow, we've installed a couple of systems that didn't have rebates, you know, and that wasn't, that wasn't really heard of, you know, five years ago. You couldn't do it. Now, now, with the investment tax credit, we've installed some systems that don't have rebates. 
you know, no rebate at all. And so obviously we're leaning on the investment tax credit still, but I see the light at the end of the tunnel, whereas, uh, uh, you know, five years ago, I, I didn't even really see the tunnel. <laughs> a lot of kinds of energy are, are the prices are cyclical. Um, natural gas is classic. Natural gas prices, uh, when the gas is scarce, the price goes up, as it was at, uh, early on in, in the last decade. And then uh, as more people drill more holes, the price falls, and then uh, the supply falls, and then the price rises again. We have uh, a, a the price of natural gas is quite low now, so it seems superficially like it's really competing with solar. But the fact is, is that people will stop drilling those holes, the price will go up again, or some other thing may come, may come in. You can never really tell, in, you know, look into the future. But the thing is, once you've got that solar panel on, it's absolutely steady for the price coming in. So it's actually it's a hedging strategy on a financial level. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of different. Another kind of solar that wasn't discussed here is wind which is really solar energy sort of a step removed. And my question is, why aren't there home-scale wind systems that are being pushed like there are home-scale PV systems that are being pushed? There are home-scale wind systems, but we tend not to install them in urban areas for, for issues, sort of structural issues. Vibrating things on your roof can be a problem. Um, neighbors don't often like them close in. And wind works better at large scale for places like us that have a big draw of power. But places where I work in Kenya, in Namibia, in Mongolia, um, there's places where basically every home has a small-scale wind system. And actually what's happened in the wind industry, which is a great example, it's actually lower cost power than solar right now, but there are more complicated siting questions. So there's a, there's a plus and a minus. But what you see in terms of wind systems for us is that it makes more sense to think about the large arrays, whereas solar has this dramatic scalability, where everything from a little solar lantern, the little LED light with some of you may have on your keychains, all the way up to these gigawatt-scale systems, all using the same technology. Wind has distinct size regimes where the type of technology, you see, you think of the, you know, the, the propeller blades, but there's also vertical access machines, there's a whole range and they tend to be because of the wind speed, the geometry of the systems. But you know, just to put a price point on it, the most recent study says that the wind installed in the best locations now can come in with a price unsubsidized in the best locations of about three to four cents a kilowatt hour, making it literally cheaper than coal without subsidy in the best locations. That's a different, different scale but, than solar cost-wise, but there's a whole bunch of caveats to that number. But those best locations aren't in Los Angeles. They're not in the city. <laughs> <laughs> They're not often on your rooftop either, right. actually. So. How does energy efficiency fit into this? Because my recommendation to my clients is generally do energy efficiency first, because I've actually seen people go from needing 10 or 12 solar panels to needing only five or six. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a good one. So part of that quote is true, part is false, though, is the story. Um, I think everyone here, and actually California, has really been one of the places in the world that has set global policy, that efficiency first is always the best strategy. You want to make the, you know, you don't want to buy expensive hardware and then waste half of the, of the power. So California set a national standard to change the pattern that was for decades energy use grew as GNP. And California decoupled that curve and broke it apart and showed that you can literally build megawatts of power by efficiency. 
So there's a huge upside story to that. The other part of this equation, though, is that we need power as well. You can't be efficient from a base of zero. You've also got to have generation. And the job number you quote is unfortunately wrong. Um, the jobs per dollar invested for solar are actually considerably higher than efficiency. They're both hugely valuable, but the industry number is about four to five times as many jobs by investing in solar versus natural gas, and three jobs, three times as many jobs from efficiency. They're both huge winners, but you need a combination of these, as well as using the fossil fuels that we do use wisely. So I think it's a real mixture story there, but I think everyone here would probably agree that efficiency is by far the, the key leading edge of that sword. Well, I think the key point is that it's not an either-or situation. Everything that we're doing right now, just looking at Los Angeles, in the next 12 to 15 years, we're going to replace 80% of our existing power supply. 80%. And we're going to do that with thousands and thousands of individual actions with our customers, with, with different suppliers. Gone is the day where you go out and build 1,000 megawatt power plants, not in California. Not in Los Angeles, anyway. That's not, going, that's not going to be part of our future. We absolutely need to do more than we're doing right now in energy efficiency. To do that, it's very similar to the situation we were just talking about on, on tax credits for, for solar and, any, and other renewables. We have to have consistent budgets, plans, and commitments year in and year out from a utilities perspective that's going to provide the incentives associated with doing that, from, from builders that encompass that into, the, into their building year in and year out and have it become part of the fabric. We're up and down on it. As the economy gets tough, we start backing away from it. We don't want to spend money on it. We're sitting out here trying to work with our customers and, and particularly commercial, commercial customers saying, we will, we will co-invest with you on efficiency investments in your building. And they'll say, that's fine. I've got to go through planning on this, and I might do it one or two years out. And we say, great, we'll do that. And then we'll come through, and we'll come up with a problem with saying, well, we don't have the budget to do that at the utility because we haven't got rates that have been approved for that. Or we, haven't, we have a problem with being able to get the overall dollars competing for other things that we have. And so we pull the carpet back out from underneath of them. We can't continue to do that. But it's pieces of everything. It's, it's being consistent on our energy efficiency. It's being consistent on what our plans are for solar and, and knowing what that's going to be year in, year, year out, and recognizing that energy efficiency in solar and wind alone won't do it. We still have to have the energy when we need it. We as individual residential customers can elect to be a little less reliable, but the rest of, the rest of our customers can't. So we have to find a way to make all of, these, all of the supplies work together on that. So some consistency year in and year out will make a huge difference in, in, in making that change. I was wondering if each one of you or some of you could share your vision of how the transformation of fossil fuel to solar generation would show up in the architectural fields or places where we don't normally would expect to feel its effect on us. Yeah, I was in electric vehicles, as, uh, as um, some of you know, prior to this, and I have a vision of a home that actually has uh, a fuel cell, has solar panels, has a vehicle that's electric that can either take energy out of the home or put it back in. And so I do have an, a, a vision of an energy efficient home. 
Um, and I think with leads and some of the standards that they're putting out there for new home builders, that, that's getting closer than it ever has been. I mean, we're working with, I can name seven or eight different new home builders that we're working with to install um, solar on their new homes and make it an offering. And people are getting used to seeing that as an offering. And some of them are going so far as to say, we're not just going to make this an option on these new homes. We're going to actually put it on this whole tract. And the person will be able to upgrade the size of the system and everything if they want to. And some of it is building integrated, as Dan said, which is great. And I support that. I think that's a huge milestone if we can get through the building integrated process and get products that are ch cheap enough to put on the homes um, and integrate into the homes. I think that's the ultimate goal is to build homes with this stuff built in, not to retrofit them. So, um, but I do see a lot of a lot of good things happening on the on the uh, homes that will integrate these different types of energies into the home, um, and so that's kind of my vision of it. I, and we're we're our company, uh, at least a year and a half ago, started doing the energy efficiency thing. And I think, like Natalie said, you know, it's always been the low hanging fruit that's been out there. And sort of the if there is a dark secret about selling solar, it's always been well. You know, your house isn't really efficient, but I'm going to give you this seven kilowatt system that you probably could get away with five if you just tighten some things up on the home. And so, you know, to that point, we're doing it ourselves. But like Ron said, we need that to make these homes really efficient. We need that consistent rebate. And if you've ever tried to, you know, if you think solar rebates are tough, as I'm sure you do, um, try getting energy efficiency rebates when there's 10 different pockets that you've got to pull it in from to make it work. So it, it, it's tough. So if we can get some of that policy consistent, um, I think we're at, a, we're at a perfect point to get the homes dialed in because guess what? We're not building a lot of homes right now. So uh, if we can get it dialed in in this little bit of a valley that I, I hope will be only a valley in home building, you know, then we can, we can take off with some really neat products. Aren't there some big improvements on the near-term horizon? Uh, I was specifically thinking about the use of nanotechnology and solar paint, the concept being that instead of these big clunky uh, cells that everyone puts on their roof, you just lay down a thin layer of this nanotechnology solar paint, much more aesthetically pleasing and also much more efficient. And isn't that something we can expect in the next three to five years? I mean, we can expect it. And there's actually a, a company that came out of Caltech that already makes solar paint. You spray it on with a you know, Wagner power paint or whatever you want. But the efficiency is very low. And in fact, like in many, many, many industries, when you look back at the broad history of innovation, so you know, did this or that individual innovation totally change a field, you look at actually over just a couple decades, and you don't see in almost anything these just dramatic you know, blips where everything changes. You look over, and solar has been improving steadily uh, for, uh, for decades now. Price has been coming down according to a very clear, it's, it's a power law relationship for the engineers in the audience. Um, but it's very steady. But those individual things, because of you've got to get into real world products, you've got to, what looks great in the lab is a little tougher to do in the field. All those features are, are existing technologies based around one kind of technology. You really see a steady progression. So it may well be in 10 years that you know, when you're buying these homes, you, you, you ask, you know, do you want to spray on solar? What color do you want it, et cetera? That's, that's technology we know how to do, but it's going to take a while to get into the market. And I guess it gets back to the question we raised before about you know, should you wait for that big innovation? And I kind of go back to this old line about Arbor Day, and that was, 
when's the best day to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When's the next best day? Today. And it's, you know, get the solar panels on now. You benefit. The industry benefits. There's really an upside in doing it. And you're unlikely to get scooped by that big innovation. Let me just add one quick point to that, because I think some of the other things we've been talking about here are also increasingly important. How we, how we finance these, these resources, how we integrate them into our system, how we uh, arrange for installation and service, et cetera. We've got to ramp this up with the, with the technologies that we have today, because all of those things, frankly to me, from a utility perspective that has the ultimate obligation of making sure that our customers who integrate all this have what they need when they want it, those are incredibly important. And if we waited around to get that, that next piece of technology, those issues are still going to be there. So we need to, we need to get, the, get solar out there, learn about it, get people to, to embrace it, both from the utilities perspective, the financiers perspective, the commercial and the, and the residential owner, so that then we have enabled those technologies to move faster because those barriers will be out of the way. My name is Matthew. I work with a local installer, Fat Energy, some power dealer. And so my perspective is, is from that of a solar sales consultant, which has been quite a story over the last couple of years. You know, LADWP rebates being huge and then going away completely and Glendale rebates. And the rebates are this constantly fluctuating sort of process that, you know, like you had talked about, it, it's, it is really difficult for any individual company to be able to manage. And so I kind of have like asked myself from a career standpoint, is this, is this a job where I'm going to have to jump from one state to another, basically chasing these rebate programs? So when I saw the title of this, no, that was, that, that's been a, a really important question that I've had for myself. Is this, is this going to be a gold rush, which means that you know, there's a big rush and then it goes away or goes back to where it was maybe 10 years ago? And you know, the way that I see it, panel prices have come down dramatically from $4 a watt to $1 a watt. Can they go down much farther? Uh, cost of electricity is increasing. But is it increasing at a rate that's high enough, especially with LADWP, uh, for solar to continue to make sense when the rebate of $1.50 or $2 a watt goes away? And will there be policies that will come in in time to like save the industry and keep it moving? So it, it, I, I'm kind of hoping for a little bit from everybody. I'm wondering, like, do you think the panels can go down more? And do you think the cost of insulation can come down? Do you guys think that... There's going to be a feed-in tariff and a new rebate program in California that'll enable this to keep going in two years. And do you think that the cost of electricity is going to continue to increase at a rate rapid enough for solar to make sense in four years when the tax credit goes away, or even in two years, or even in one year, you know, for some utilities, <laughs> when the rebates are gone? I'll answer just my part, and then I'll let these guys take their parts. But I, I do think the module prices can go down further. Um, you know, I, I, I do have the same thought you do, which is, we are, are we reaching the bottom of that curve and where are we going to end up? Um, so I do think that the, the inverter pricing, the module pricing can go down further. I mean, we, we installed, I think through the CSI program, which, which is not even counting DWP, we installed, uh, I think, 43 megawatts in January. And I think, like these guys said, the growth 
It's not about the size of it compared to Germany or some of the other nations that were ahead of us, but it's about the growth, the, the, like Lisa said, the potential growth of this thing. So we, I never would have guessed that. You know, I mean, so the volume of the installations, I think itself is going to bring down some of these costs um, on the, that are not on the manufacturing side, so on the installation side. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can see it every day in our, in our warehouses when we have a full schedule for the crews that are working there, and you've seen it, I'm sure, too, vividly, that being out in the field, that when you have a full schedule and you can schedule everybody and they can go boom, 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 boom and hit these homes, they, they are so much more efficient. It's not even funny. You know, and, and we really haven't gotten to touch some of the efficiencies in the other um, construction trades yet. But, but I think we're getting there because of the volume. So that's my piece of it. I think this last point is really key because as impressive as the companies like yours and others have become out there, Sanjevity, Solar City, a whole bunch of uh, fat, a bunch of people doing stuff, we're still operating really well in the startup mode. It's still retrofits on existing homes, working hard to go find the home, even with you know, Google and other earth things to map them out. We're still operating, I mean, I want to say in the positive way, in a homespun way. We're still doing it as a cottage industry. We're not doing it so that the big housing and building manufacturers, the base product is the most efficient building possible and solar on the roof is assumed. And if you don't do it, you have to go file a, a petition and you have to go get a permit not to put solar on. You have to say, well, I happen to be in fog socked in Pacifica or there's a huge cliff overhanging my building so that it's the reverse story. Because when you start to build these in, not as aftermarket retrofits, but when it becomes part of the building process and you've got to get a variance not to do it, the price can drop dramatically. And then you know, the factors of two or four, some people even think are available in module costs, two or four more there, start applying those to the rest of the cost. You know, there's a real huge potential out there, but it does require the kind of, of integration that we heard here. You've got to think about, you know, we have big coal plants out there partially because we subsidize the railroads. We have big, big hydro because we subsidize the dam building, we subsidize the transmission. We, if we want that same ministry here, and not just for solar, for those heat pumps in the basements and for distributed wind and for taking urban waste and making that into energy and for fuel cells in your basement, all those things are possible, you know, we have to commit to it. And that means thinking about the whole system and we're not really good at thinking about the whole system because it's complicated. So I think that the opportunity is huge, but it does require the kind of integration that California is in the lead in, but we all have a lot to learn about how to do it right. What about, what about utility prices? Mm -hmm. and, and thank you for noting that LADWP has lower retail rates. Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I have you walk down to City Hall yeah. with me next week? <laughs> so that's a balancing act. It's a balancing act, particularly in today's economy. And in LA, we're not building a lot of new homes. There aren't those big tracks uh, out there that are going. So we are dealing with largely, today, yeah. a retrofit market. And perhaps a little bit more in LA because we are not, you know, unlike, say, SoCal Edison's territory, that ultimately when, when things boom, they're gonna be going out and developing more housing tracks out in open land. Not a lot of that's gonna happen in Los Angeles. So I'm looking at it from a different, different set of glasses from that perspective. But we want to develop solar in a way that builds on itself and grows at a pace that isn't 
a flash in the pan. It's not a gold rush that comes, boom, and fades. Are we doing it fast enough? Believe me, I hear every day, no, we're not. Okay? I get that. But it goes back to the price issue. Everything, we were talking about a feed-in tariff. A feed-in tariff at our, our next stage, we're talking about doing at least 75 megawatts after we do a short demo plan. We're being pushed to do 150 in that same period of time. The difference between those two is, on average, when we put all that cost across all of our customers, we're putting that in. 75 megawatts is like, for our average customer, 25 cents a month for everyone's bill to do that. Doubling it is, not a big surprise, 50 cents a month. Is 50 cents a month an unreasonable expense rather than 25? I don't think so. Right now, when I go down and I, and I speak to our city council about raising rates, they don't want 10 cents because of the economy that we're in right now. I'd like to think that's a short-term circumstance. What we need to do is build it and grow it so it's not a flash in the pan, that we don't have to have people going who are become solar carpetbaggers going around from rebate to rebate. We need to develop it, grow it, see there's a path towards getting that done and, and make it so it balances out as those costs are coming down, it becomes an ability to grow it more and more and become a part of, more ubiquitous part of our power supply. Getting that balance is something we're gonna work on every single year. Can I, can I um, at make a little statement about your career advice? Um, I think that, <laughs> which is I think what part of what your question was. I think California has a, a more sturdy policy environment in terms of there is a, a long-term commitment to this stuff. But I think the other thing is, is that people like you who understand how this works need to start going and showing up at the PUC hearings. I mean, we need to understand that utilities are a regulated industry. They don't, this is not Ayn Rand's capitalism. This is something else entirely. This is a capitalism that delivers a lot of power to a lot of places. And uh, the, it needs to have a lot more public participation and people need to start talking about this as an integrated part of, of our, our grid in California and of the way that we're going, not, um, some freaky thing that that's only some people can afford. And that's one of the reasons I really uh, feel that we need to start really pushing this into um, middle class and, and lower middle class and, and, and make this a, a part of, of every home. It needs to be something that everyone participates in rather than just something for the people who can afford a Prius and a big suite on the, on the roof. Hi, my name's Connie Levy, and I'm just a homeowner and a consumer, and I had looked into having solar panels put on my roof, and just, um, I, I don't know what the company was that told me that because of my usage, I let him know how much, I was, how much power I was using, um, he said that really they almost didn't do systems that small, that I could actually have two electric cars and a big screen TV, and I would still be under... And however, then I had an then I had an assessment done, I, and I think it was LADWP that did it. I, I think you have some software that allows you to actually look at my roof. And when they looked at my roof, I, I have a lot of trees around my house. They said that I would not be able to to get any solar power, that, that I would not be able to use it because of the tree coverage. Now, I've since had trees cut, so... <laughs> so, so... No, not... No, just trimmed. Not cut down. <laughs> I never cut down trees. <laughs> no, I love my trees, but I've had them trimmed, you know, so that there's a roof area that's showing. So I'm willing to have a reassessment done. Now, um, 
if I can get solar panels, I am a little bit concerned about the solar panels because I obviously want the least expensive that I can get. Um, with the Chinese, the only thing I worry about are, you know, are there human rights violations, are, you know, is uh, the pollution, you mentioned the pollution factor. So my, my question, this is all leading up to my question, which is, so let's say that now you've saved a, enough energy with these solar panels that you've paid for the, the, the panels, you've paid for the installation. How long is it before you have created the, the zero carbon footprint of the production of the actual panels that you purchased? About two years. So your panel is generally guaranteed for 20, gonna produce much longer, but on average for a solar panel, it pays back all the energy that goes into producing it, the materials issues, in about two years of its life. And, and is that also taking into account, though, the environmental damage? Well, it depends on how many trees you cut, but we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back. But, but actually, so, so I actually just came back from, a, from, from a, 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 ten, a, a condo development in the Netherlands, and the people who lived on the side that did not have good solar access complained. And what they worked out was a deal was they collectively put solar onto a neighboring building and all of the tenants in the building took advantage of that and you bought shares in the solar array. And some people wanted to buy lar larger shares than they would need as an investment when the utility starts to buy power back. And that was a way to get away from your individual roof entirely and actually to take advantage of some of these economies of scale by building bigger systems. And so, you know, we are, we are just at the, at the cusp of that here, but we're seeing in Europe already a model that makes it even easier and keep your beautiful trees intact. <laughs>